Anyone who has covered Apple for any length of time knows the phrase, Apple doesn't comment on future products. After all, why spoil the surprise? Apple unveils its products exactly when it means to. But that doesn't mean that from time to time, the company doesn't enjoy teasing us. When Steve Jobs returned to Apple in the late 90s, he focused on the big surprise product reveal. But he described the company's Mac strategy by showing a four-quadrant grid. Desktop computers on the top, laptops on bottom, consumer Macs to the left, professional models to the right. Pro desktop, the Power Mac G3. Pro laptop, the PowerBook G3. Consumer desktop, the iMac. And consumer laptop, in that quadrant, there was only this tantalizing question mark. Here's Stephen Hackett. So the grid of four, right, Jobs? philosophy, his product strategy coming back, professional consumer, desktop portable. Consumer notebook was just a question mark for a long time. But in the summer of 1999, the tease ended. It was finally time for the laptop version of the iMac to be introduced. It was a product the likes of which had never been seen before or since. It's 20 Macs for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. This is number seven, the iBook. The original iBook was very clearly a product designed by the makers of the original iMac. It was a combination of textured white plastic and brightly colored rubber, available in orange or blue. Reactions were strong. Here's Harry McCracken. I remember having a viscerally negative reaction to that in a way that's unusual for an Apple product, just in terms of of thinking it looked hideous and ridiculous and and oversized, and people used to compare it to a toilet seat, which I don't think is a completely inappropriate thing to say about it. This notebook is bonkers. Even if you've never used one or seen one, you can picture it because it's so unique. It's just so wild looking. Here's John Gruber. Part of it is maybe the pent up design chops of Johnny Ive and his whole team breaking out of the beige, uh, rudderless leadership of the pre-Jobs Apple wanting to just exercise what they can do. And, you know, here it's exuberance. Here's Shelley Brisbane. I can see why they went for it, because the colorful iMacs had been such a success and people loved them. And there were awkward things about using those all-in-one iMacs. So why not make a portable that has the same fun aesthetics, but that's also a portable? And it was big, but Apple had not gotten into the cult of lightness and thinness to the extent that it would later, so it didn't seem like it was bulky. Here's James Thompson. I didn't love the design. It looked like somebody had steamrolled an iMac, but it it was pretty distinctive. I mean, it was chunky, but compared to the other laptops, it had some personality. I mean, the whole Barbie's toilet seat thing, I thought was a bit mean. It was very much of that early Johnny Ive design. Here's John Syracuse. This fills out the era defined by the iMac, where Apple was making colorful, daring, fun computers. This is the laptop that fits into that family. Straight line from iMac to PowerMac G3 to this iBook. These being the consumer models were even more daring. Not only did they come in a fun color, they came in multiple fun colors like the iMac did. It's Apple saying, we're so proud of how this looks as a piece of art, as a piece of sculpture. Isn't it cool looking? And you know what? People agree. They look at it and said, that is cool looking. I want that because it's cool looking. It has to look like a toilet seat. It has to look like a purse, but it just plain looked cool. And it also looked rugged and durable and had all the features that you would imagine. It was priced right. Now, 
overall, was this a, a product that really hung together in terms of performance and specs? Mm, it was a little underpowered. The screen wasn't that great. You could feel some of the cost that was pulled out of it, but it was absolutely carried by the industrial design, appearance, and fun. It had all the things that a consumer might want, and even if you bought this computer and realized, oh, this is actually kind of pokey and the screen is kind of gross and this trackpad is a little small and my hands are kind of staining the plastic, you would still like that product the whole time you had it because you'd just be riding on the wave of the joy of owning and using this thing. Every time you opened it up and closed it, it was just such a fun computer. But the iBook isn't just notable for bringing iMac-style design back to a laptop. It's also notable because it was the first Mac ever to support Wi-Fi, which Apple branded as Airport. If you watch the keynote, Jobs basically stops the presentation to talk about Airport. At one point, he's browsing the web and he walks away from the table that the iBook is on. Uh, there's CNN, you can see. Uh, and uh, maybe I'll go to Disney here. You know, I can, I can watch. Come on over here. Let me show them the uh, show, show these guys how it works. Come on over here. You want to get behind me there? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I can just go to here. And it takes a second for the crowd to pick up what's happened. And he has a hula hoop, and he passes the hula hoop over the computer to show that there's no wires hidden anywhere, that he is on Wi-Fi. No wires. No wires. Wi-Fi was one of those sufficiently advanced technologies that did feel like magic. And... Using the computer to access the internet with no wires connected to it just didn't seem like it should be possible. And then, of course, very famously, Phil Schiller jumped off a platform with an iBook to show that it was transmitting data wirelessly. This is all happening totally wireless. Now, to prove that to you, I've asked Phil to do something he's never done before. And I told Phil he's going to get into the demo hall of fame if he'll just do this one simple thing for me. So, Phil, where are you? Hey, guys. There he is. I've got the iBook. It's got the accelerometer attached to it. This couldn't be a better place to prove it's really wireless. I, know, I thought maybe I'd just throw it off the side and try to get some acceleration going. Well, that, that could be good, but I think it's something a little more drama to it. I, I think you should jump. All right. Three, two, one, jump. And I thought he was going to die, or at least injure himself. And I had Apple stock at that point. And I was thinking, I just had that moment as he fell. I was like, what would happen to Apple stock if something goes badly here? Big hand for Phil here. But I did get to play with one of them early. And we did the thing of setting up the base station at one end of a very long corridor. And then I walked slowly away with this thing in my hand, you know, trying to see how far we could go with the Wi-Fi connection still working. And it was magical. Now, if you can't imagine a world without Wi-Fi, let me explain this. Back in early 1999, I had a PowerBook and a home internet connection. My router was in the back bedroom of my house, and I wanted to use my PowerBook in my living room. The solution was a 50-foot-long Ethernet cable that ran from the bedroom down the hallway through the dining area and into the living room. If I was on my laptop on the couch, I would grab the Ethernet cable and plug in. Then came Airport, which initially manifested itself as a $99 add-in card for the iBook. You flipped up the keyboard, attached an antenna plug, and slid it into a card slot. 
there was also a silver UFO-shaped base station that could either connect via Ethernet or alternately use a built-in modem to connect to a dial-up internet service. Now back to the iBook itself. While it was billed as a consumer laptop, what did that really mean? Plenty of regular people had bought and fallen in love with PowerBooks over the years. This was a different product. Apple was trying to make a more affordable laptop and also design it specifically for a few key markets, most notably education. It really was a consumer notebook, but Apple also built it for education customers. There's lots of things built into this system. Like, for instance, on the bottom, there are two charging pins. So you could charge them in a rolling cart that you would take in between classrooms. Uh, obviously, the handle and the the injected rubber around the edges, which gives us its color, it was built to be abused by kids. And they do hold up really well. The hard drive is in like this shock-mounted little cocoon in the middle of the notebook. They really did what they could to make it rugged. And then the fun look, giving it personality like the iMac with the colors and everything. I think that was bonus for them after they set the goal of, we want this to be a really tough notebook. It's worth pointing out that Apple was really trying to get into schools at that time and was very successful at it. There were some famous instances of Apple selling laptops to entire school systems. And maybe that cute plastic not only would appeal to kids, but it was also perceived to be sort of rugged. Apple clearly imagined that the original iBook would delight the average user and Apple's education customers alike. And perhaps it did. But I suspect that a huge portion of the potential buyers for any consumer laptop are actually just looking for a cheap laptop. And since a laptop is the kind of device you take out in public, including potentially to business meetings, bringing in this curvy, brightly colored clamshell might stand out a bit more than those buyers actually wanted. It definitely didn't look like something somebody who wore a suit would bring out in a business meeting. The main criticism that people had of it, frankly, was they called it the Barbie laptop. It was derisively nicknamed that because of the colors and because of the rounded edges and because it was so plasticky. And I got my hackles up because sexism is too strong a word, but there was a lot of geeks not being impressed with something that was too cute for them. That doesn't mean it was a great laptop, but it clearly didn't work in the marketplace. So it wasn't just the pundits and the geek class making fun of it. You can see that it would be difficult for somebody who's a stockbroker to you know, take the pink clamshell laptop into an investment meeting and feel comfortable about it. But uh, maybe if you give a pink clamshell laptop to a kid in junior high, they're going to be more likely to take care of it. I don't know why the the iMac kind of stuck as a design thing and the iBook fell away so quickly. I can assume that it was just that the important businessman didn't want that kind of thing sitting on the desk. My guess is that people thought it was too childish and that people who were maybe in the market for a Mac notebook, their option was this or a power book they couldn't afford because the power books were a lot more money. And I think that, yeah, it felt childish to some people. This is the type of computer that you can imagine being used in an ad agency filled with creative, beautiful people, right? And in fact, if you were a creative, beautiful person in an ad agency and you used it there, you would feel good about using it. Everyone would feel good about being in the meeting when you opened up your Tangerine iBook. You would feel good about being the person behind it because you're a creative, fun person. And obviously also in schools or anything that has to do with kids. These are fun-looking computers that you can imagine kids using in schools or in a computer lab. 
in those contexts, this design is perfect. In other contexts, it's not so much the bold colors that really killed it, but the design of this is kind of the last gasp of a laptop that could afford to not hug its components with a death grip. This is like a car with tail fins. It has parts of its anatomy that do not serve any functional purpose that make it larger and more unwieldy just because they look cool. And that was a moment in time that could not last very long. Business users can't afford to have these giant tail fins on their laptops. It needs to fit into a bag. It needs to be small on the conference room table. And so the margins got pulled in on these things. These are big, big notebooks. They're thick. They're heavy. And Apple, by stripping some of that stuff away, was able to make something that looked more high-end than it actually was. So people felt less self-conscious about opening in a coffee shop, I guess, in like a key lime <laughs> iBook G3. And it let them make a, a portable machine that was actually, even though it didn't have a handle like this did, uh, much more portable in practice. What people wanted in laptops was something thin and light which it was not really striving for. And it obviously tried to take the design aesthetic of the iMac and make it portable in a way that Apple gave up on after trying it that one time. Two years later, this iBook was retired and replaced with a new iBook that was shaped more or less like every other laptop ever made. They got rid of the tail fins. It turns out that, indeed, what people wanted in a consumer laptop was a cheaper laptop that looked like a laptop. I still miss the colors, though. Since this iBook retired, here's a list of all the colors Apple has used for its laptops. White, black, silver, gray, and every now and then, a shade or two of gold. Now, Apple's current laptops are far more successful than the original iBook ever was, but they do lack its sense of fun. I would buy a MacBook Air in blueberry or tangerine in a heartbeat. This has been 20 Max for 2020. It was written by me, Jason Snell. My thanks to Stephen Hackett, John Gruber, John Syracuse, Harry McCracken, Shelley Brisbane, and James Thompson. Brian Hamilton provided post-production help. I'll be back next week with number six. Woo!